Welcome to the Arrow Buddhist Tradition podcast series. For more information about the Arrow Buddhist Tradition, please go to the website at arrowbuddhism.org. If you wish to make a donation to support this podcast project, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help. Hello, I'm Nima Ozerkondro and I'm here with Naktam Rinpoche, and we are discussing the topic of karma and his book, Rays of the Sun. So... Today I want to talk with you about karma and what the view of karma is in Dzogchen. Could you define the word karma and maybe talk a little bit to us about what different meanings people might think it has and what meaning it has in the Dzogchen view? Well, uh, karma is no different uh, in view to how it is in Sutrayana. Okay. Uh, It's perception and response. It's the patterning of one's perception. So as you perceive, so you act. If you see something that you think you like, then you like that thing, whatever it is. Okay. Uh, why you happen to like it is, is often conditioned in terms of society telling you that you like it or advertisements tell you you like it, your friends tell you you like it, you're brought up to think this is something I'm supposed to like and therefore you like it. If you like it, you go for it. If you don't like it, you don't go for it. So pattern perception. Okay. Um, most people um, have what I would loosely describe as a uh, a belief in Hindu karma, Mm -hmm. which is materialist karma. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, every action uh, has a reaction Mm -hmm. so that your karma is what um, you commit some act and then something else happens to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are various things that are your karma. You, know, you trip on a paving stone and that's your karma. Mm. Um, in terms of Buddhist karma, we'd say you tripped on a paving stone because you weren't paying attention. <laughs> Not because you were once a person who paved streets and you did it carelessly or some mm. such thing. That is not actually Buddhist karma. Then how does that relate to the idea of merit and accumulating merit and wisdom in Buddhism, which is often talked about maybe perhaps more in Mahayana? You can't accumulate wisdom. You can only accumulate information. Okay. Um, Aren't they called the two accumulations? Is that uh, a bad translation maybe? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, um, I I really only speak from the point of view of Vajrayana. Okay. Um, So, uh, you know, wisdom, it it all depends on what the translation of that is. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can accumulate Sherab, Mm -hmm. but you can't accumulate Yeshe. Okay. Yeshe is primordial wisdom. Sherab is knowledge. Um, Knowledge of a particular type, though, not purely information. Um, Sherab would be the kind of knowledge you'd uh, gain from studying Dharma. Mm-hmm. But it'll still be informationally based. You can accumulate that. 
Merit is um, a tricky subject. I never talk about it. That doesn't mean I won't talk about it now, but um, uh, I think Kwanzaa Dojrum once said to me, uh, he told me a story about Milarepa, about Milarepa's sister who comes to see him and is completely horrified because she finds her brother sitting naked on a rock with his schlong draped out on the stone, you know, and, uh, and, and she is horrified and uh, ashamed and whatever. His clothes have just rotted and so he's thrown them away and he's not had time to go and get any more. It's of no concern to him. So she decides to go off and buy him some material so he can cover himself. So she goes and begs for some weeks and goes through all kinds of privations to get this cloth for him and she brings it to him with needle and thread and then you know, goes away to circumambulate some churton somewhere. And um, when she comes back, she's horrified all over again because he's made a cover for his schlong <laughs> and a cover for his nose and a cover for his fingers and toes. And she, she says, why have you ruined this beautiful material I bought for you? He said, well, I thought you didn't like that, so you might not like anything that looked vaguely like it, so I've covered it all for you. Um, now, she was... Um, she'd walked all the way there and done all this thing to accumulate merit. Mm -hmm. And Kunzang she said to me, you know, why do you accumulate merit? So you'll be a practitioner in another life? If you want to practice, why not just practice? You know, if you want to be a practitioner that much that you accumulate merit so one day you'll be able to be a practitioner... If your desire is that strong, why don't you just sit? You know, why walk halfway across Tibet? So he didn't have a lot of time for that idea. Um, merit is something that really only concerns you if you don't want to sit. It's something else you can do. But I've always found it uh, tricky because, you know, acts of kindness shouldn't have a little calculator behind them. Merit being a crude hand is good. I'll help the old lady across the road. That's another five points. Um, so this is probably um, not... Um, very proper of me to say this, but I'm very much concerned with, with kindness being a natural thing. And I think that ideas of merit get in the way of that. You know, if you want to help uh, Lama X build a church in here, or if you want to, you know, you know donate to a gompa, then why not just do that? You know, if you're going to be told, well, if you do this, you'll gain merit, then you're being paid for it. So I, I've personally never been able to understand that. Mm -hmm. I think you'd have to be 
almost some kind of a lower primate to have to work in that way, that I will only, you know, perpetrate acts of kindness if I'm paid with merit. So that's why I never talk about it. And I must admit that I'm a thoroughly bad person and have a bad attitude. Um, and I shouldn't really speak like that if I was a, you know, respectable Buddhist. <laughs> But as I'm not a respectable Buddhist, I can, I can say things like that. Because <laughs> everyone hates me anyway, so it's all right. <laughs> but, you know, I really don't see what the problem is of just being kind mm -hmm. without any payment. Because kindness is its own payment. Now, it's nice to see people smile, you know. It's mm -hmm. nice to make people happy. And if people are having a problem, it's... it's it's fun to help them, you know, and it's important to try to liberate that. So that's why I don't really talk about merit that much, or at all, mm. ever, apart from now, and that's mm. it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've heard you say that before about the, the reward of the good karma of some kind of action like this is the, it feels good to be kind and it's kind of an instantaneous reward, mm. just the experience. Yeah, it's there immediately. Yeah. yeah. In Rays of the Sun, when one part of the book it says uh, that Sokchen Long Day, that the meaning of it is the vast space which transcends causality. This vast space of being is unrestricted by causality. This means that when you realize the non-dual state, the karmic boys in blue are not going to tap you on the shoulder and say, we realize that your perception is now completely uncontrived, but we will still have a warrant out on you for gross insensitivity in a public place. <laughs> And so you mentioned the Hindu view of karma as materialist karma. And then also here in Rays of the Sun, you talk about the non-dual state as that which transcends causality. How does that relate to practitioners who haven't realized the non-dual state? Does that mean that is a, a state of being where we are bound by causality? Or yes, by the, the causal illusion of causality? Or? Well, by the causality of one's own perception. Okay. But it doesn't exist outside you. Mm. And so, in that case, when we have perceptual habits, and they're manifesting in a repetitive way, mm -hmm. let's say, for example, any emotion, the pattern of anger, and we have had anger yesterday, we had it two years ago, we had anger problems three years ago, so we have this perceptual pattern and it's manifesting today, then how would we work with that in terms of this view of, of karmic perception? In Rays of the Sun, you have this really interesting, actually I think it's in Wearing the Body of Visions, where you say we discontinue the process and deconstruct our own perception. That, the part which says, uh, oh, here it is. It's on page 51 of Rays in the Sun. So 
we perceive the world in a certain way and react to it in accordance with that style of perception, that's what's meant by karma. Uh Unless we discontinue the process and destructure our own perception. So what what does that mean? Oh, the destructuring of perception uh, occurs of itself. It's not something you have to do. Mm. In fact, you can't do it. You can't take it apart. It takes itself apart by being looked at. Mm. A dualistic perception does not like being looked at. Mm. If you look at it, it starts falling apart. Mm. And for that you have to sit. So just awareness itself is deconstructing the pattern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It can't exist in the face of awareness, uh, which means all our um, nauseating little habits uh, you know, do best when they're hidden. Mm. And we can pretend they're not there. Right. Or rather, it's not pretending that they're not there. We pretend not to see what we get out of it. Because what we get out of it is so puerile that we have to hide that. And if we actually see it, it looks ridiculous, which is why we have to hide it. And so if we weren't hiding it, that itself would destructure it. Yeah, and you it can't. It unravels it. You can't hide it if you sit. Yeah. Which is why, you know, you know, if you go to any spiritual center... All the politics are created by people who don't practice Mm. because they need something to do because they're not sitting. But if you actually sit, then it begins to uh, disintegrate because you can't sit without that happening. By sitting, uh, I'm referring to shine and latong, Mm. silent sitting practice where you... uh, let go of uh, attachment to a rising thought. As soon as you do that, your patterning becomes transparent to itself. As soon as that happens, it begins to disintegrate. Um, the disintegration is partially one where you see it more often. You know, so I can say, oh, God, you're bugging me at the moment. I'm thinking, ah, here I go again being bugged. Um, It's not that you don't feel bugged by somebody, but you're observing it. And you know that that is a habit pattern. You still feel as bugged as you did before, but you're aware of it as a habit. And you can't be aware of it as a habit without eroding it. If you just think, this is me, this is all perfectly natural, and I have every right to be bugged, <laughs> then you'll go on being bugged forever. You know, it's, uh, but as soon as you say, well, you know, I wish this wasn't here. I wish I wasn't feeling like this. So you have some kind of disapproval of it. Not in terms of generating any vast greed or shame or, or not, not greed, what's the word, um, uh, uh, shame, um, 
other words. No, no. Revulsion. Guilt, guilt, oh, that's the word. Because okay. usually we can't be self-critical without feeling guilty. Um, actually, shame and guilt are good things. <laughs> People should feel them more often. <laughs> the problem with shame and guilt is that we protract them. They're of value in the moment. Oh, God, I did that. I'm not going to do that again. Finish. <laughs> it's over. You know, it's gone. Mm. But I mean, if you make it last for weeks and months and years, it serves no purpose. Because usually that kind of shame and guilt um, enable you to keep doing it whilst excusing yourself because you feel ashamed and guilty. So you can keep doing it whilst feeling ashamed and guilty. It's a kind of a deal that we make with ourselves. Mm. So if you just notice, I just notice how I am and think, mm, I don't want to be feeling that. I am, but I don't want to be feeling that. And you just notice. And if you keep noticing in that way, eventually you stop being like that because you can't maintain it. Wow, this is just really a pleasure. I'm so happy to be able to talk with you about this. Um, the, one of the things you mentioned is that politics always take place with, in, in sanghas where there are people who aren't practicing, then those are the people who will be involved in the mm. politics. And otherwise, if you sit then you become aware of these patterns and they unravel. So that's a really interesting thing. I just had posted a quote from you on my Facebook page and in the in the it was actually from the San Francisco Public Teaching and you had said, well if you practice meditation you should be this is what it's I thought you said that you become more clear and open and present and able to understand and comprehend reality rather than this notion someone was asking you about um, meditation making you more dysfunctional or um, sort of like the greater awareness you have the less functional you have that idea of enlightenment where someone becomes a kind of enlightened zombie and so you were saying no well meditation would make you more mm -hmm. aware well, that's also tied in with what I describe as a Hindu view. Um, right. I, I think I'd like to talk about this Hindu word. Uh, I don't really like using it because it's an umbrella term that covers a wide range of different Indian philosophies, but we're kind of stuck with it because the British invented it. It was about, um, it, the word came from those living around the river Indus. And so mm -hmm. this word Hindu came out of it. Mm -hmm. So um, I only, re uh, I use it to equate to the word Tartika. Mm -hmm. I could just say Tartika instead. Uh, mm -hmm. um, it means a person who adheres to one of the four philosophical extremes. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether there are still Tartikas in India or whether different 
Hindu schools would be classified as Tirti because I don't un I don't understand enough about them to be able to say that. So it's really Tirtika is what I mean. But um, from what I've seen in the West, this idea is is prevalent within those um, strains that come from India. You know, the idea that the world is samsara rather than my mind is samsara. Mm -hmm. uh, if you say the world is samsara, then becoming enlightened would then mean that you became dysfunctional or dysfunctionality would become a qualification. Well, of course you're dysfunctional because you've recognized samsara and you can't deal with it. So that is directly linked to a world and body as samsara. Mm -hmm. And if you have that philosophy, then realization is going to be portrayed as a state of being dysfunctional. But that has no place at all with Dzogchen, so that you know, in terms of uh, a big meditation retreat, you wouldn't be warned to be careful when you go out into the world, into, because you're not going out into samsara. You know? The high street is not samsara. It's my mind that's samsara, and if my mind is samsara, then everywhere I am is samsara because of my mind. If my mind is non-dual, then everywhere I go is um, non-dual. <laughs> So it depends entirely on how you see it. You know, it's like um, flared trousers. Do you remember those? Yeah. Now, there are people who used to wear those, and I was one of them. I, I, I stopped wearing them because they stopped making them. That's the only reason. But um, you'll, you'll hear people say, didn't I look ridiculous wearing those? And you say, well, you didn't think you looked ridiculous at the time. Maybe in 20 years on, you'll be saying, look how ridiculous I looked then. And you can keep saying that forever. But these trousers are neither ridiculous nor not ridiculous. That They simply exist. The ridiculousness of them or the fashionableness of them is empty. Why am I saying this? Um, <laughs> you were talking about um, some, uh, this view of where the world is equated with samsara, mm. the body is equated with samsara, in relationship to my question about being dysfunctional in meditation. Right. So the world is samsara when you look at it like that. Mm. But that says nothing about it. It says something about my perception of it. So that's why I was saying that, you know, that meditation does not make you dysfunctional unless it's a process of internalization and a relationship with the world that categorizes it as samsara, the world and the body. Mm -hmm. but in terms of Dzogchen, the world and the body are not samsara. Samsara is um, dualism. It's our dualistic perception. And so that's linked in with karma in terms of specific patternings. Mm -hmm. You know, it's our individual style of dualistic perception. Mm 
about the situations where, um, when this, actually I'll rephrase it, when I put this posting, one person was commenting and was uh, maybe, I don't know what he was feeling, I mean how can one know through Facebook, but it seemed like it was significant to him because it was interpreted as an assertion that if we practice meditation, then we should become uh, increasingly less neurotic. Mm -hmm. And so in the posting, a big discussion ensued, and (laughs) lots of people were commenting about that because he said, well, there are a lot of people who meditate that struggle with their lives and have problems, and so meditation doesn't necessarily give that result. And um, so what, what are your thoughts on that? I gave no time frame. Yeah, great. Yeah. I mean, eventually, Yeah. if you want to learn to play a musical instrument um, and you go to uh, a music teacher to teach you how to play it, and you practice for a day or two and say, that didn't work, I can't play this musical instrument mm-hmm. yet. Well, then you're an idiot. You know, I mean, it could take years, it could take a lifetime to do that. So I'm talking about a relatively gradual process here. Mm-hmm. That will be slower for some than others, but it all depends uh, how you approach that meditation anyway. You know, if you approach meditation as something that you do once a day and you get it over with, and the rest of your life you're not really attempting to look at yourself, then sure, you're not going to get very far with it. Um, Mm. So, you know, it depends what people mean by, well, I meditate and I'm still as crazy as I was 10 years ago. Uh, it depends what's what's going to happen there. You know, if you're, uh, you know, if you have your twenty minutes a day or, or your or whatever period it is, <coughs> and then with the rest of your day, you're not really doing anything at all. You know, you're not trying to um, bear the teaching in mind. You're not looking at yourself. You're not looking at your arising emotions, and you're not. Um, looking at your pattern of perception, then you're not going to change. And then you can sit and just go to sleep, <laughs> or, or sit and zone out. Um, but, um, Excuse me. Um, Facebook discussions are... Um, I'm not sure what value they are, <laughs> because everyone likes to have something to say. Yeah. And so they say it, and then someone else says something. Well, one of your ordained apprentices, Cherdrill, that was actually her response to it, that it depends on how integrated one's practice is with one's daily life. So, okay. I mean, you know, a statement as to if you practice, if you sit, then Mm -hmm. you'll become less neurotic. Um, You know, if you take that as, 
having to happen immediately or being some kind of quick fix, then that's not going to be realistic. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is no quick fix. Even in the instantaneous path of Sokchan, there's no... Oh, well, yes, there's the quick fix there, certainly, and then there's a quick unfix oh. that happens wow. directly afterwards. <laughs> you know, you can have flashes of, mm. of open experience and then lose them <coughs> because one's um, habitual tendencies are usually quite strong. And so with habitual tendencies, one, it sounded like one of the things you recommended was for a practitioner to keep observing that state when it's arising. Oh, okay, this is that habit again. I don't want to be in it. And that's one way that we would have our perception unravel and silent sitting. And then also, how does the yidam practice relate to that unraveling of our perceptional perceptual habits. Is that something we could apply in those moments as well? Mm, well, in order to be able to practice yidam, you actually have to be able to experience emptiness. If you can't, then active imagination isn't going to help a great deal. But if you can dissolve your experience of yourself into emptiness and arise as Yeshitsogyal, as Padmasambhava, then that is going to um, change your perception. But just sitting and getting a picture of Yeshitsogyal in your mind isn't really going to do a great deal. You actually really have to become that. Or if she's external, she has to be really clear. Um, so it's, that's not so simple. Or rather, it's simple, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. Because it relies on emptiness. Tantra relies on emptiness. If you have no experience of emptiness, you can't actually practice Tantra. And so in that case, in that Arotar, if someone doesn't have the experience yet of emptiness, then what practice would they be doing? Would they still be focused on silent sitting in the first stage of silent sitting? Or what would the Well, it's not that you can't. Uh, it, or? It's not that you can't practice yidam if you've not experienced emptiness. It's just the the practice isn't really going to be Tantra. Um, I think throughout the Buddhist path, especially as it's portrayed in Tibet, one practices um, in a multi-yana way. Mm. Actually, you do it in horse riding too. Mm. Um, before you can trot well, they get you cantering. And when you counter, it improves your trot. And then before you can counter well, they get you jumping. Because that improves your counter, which improves your trot, and it goes backwards and forwards. Uh, this is a lame analogy, but you, know, you can see there's some reflection there. Mm -hmm. So um, if you have a great deal of inspiration 
in terms of the Yidam. And you have uh, devotion for your teacher. Then you can visualize the Yidam, and that will have its own effect. But in terms of actually transforming uh, a negative imprint, you know, um, distorted perception, uh, it's not going to make a lasting change to that. You're not going to get over something just by trying to visualize Yeshitsagel uh, unless you have experience of emptiness. But practicing a Yidam before you have that experience of emptiness is still valuable in terms of having that connection through the Lama with the Yidam, which is why we teach it anyway. Likewise with practices of Dzogchen, the base of Dzogchen is the non-dual state, but still we teach people um, sky-gazing because it's, it is functional, but it's just not Dzogchen if you're not at the base. So all these yanas can be employed, but you have to remember that it's only functioning as tantra if you're at the base of emptiness. It's only Dzogchen if you're approaching it from the non-dual base. That reminds me of uh, once you were at our center talking to the Sangha about who knows, and something came up about some kind of mind pattern that someone had, and then you made the joke of, stop it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and there seems to be some practitioners who that's not an option. You know, that to me, that, that makes sense to stop it or let it go. And then what about for practitioners for whom that's not an option to stop it or let it go, that the, that the sense of being consumed by their perceptual patterns is so strong for them and they're not familiar enough either with practice or with the empty state even for people who've practiced for a long time to be able to let that go. Then in those moments, what, what advice do you have for how someone could, could develop so that they could stop it eventually <laughs> or uh, also how to relate to those moments well, they, the with, thing, if they want mm-hmm. to relate to them differently? Well, we're talking about hypothetical practitioners here. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure what I would say to a hypothetical practitioner. Okay. Um, Somebody who can't try to stop it mm-hmm. is not a practitioner. Mm. Now, if you try to stop it and you fail, you just stop it again. Mm. You keep stopping it. I'm not suggesting that if you try to stop it, you succeed. Okay. But you try to stop it. Mm. Then you back into it. Then you stop it again. Mm-hmm. Like you're sitting thought arises, you grasp onto it, you let it go. It arises again, you grasp onto it, you let it go. It's tedious, but uh, 
Yeah. So stopping it, you just stop it in the same, you know, shine manner. Right. Well, I stopped it five minutes ago. Looks like I'm going to have to stop it again. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what I'd suggest, you know. I'm afraid I don't have anything more creative than that's that great. to suggest. That's fantastic. But, um, that's, um, yeah. you know, and it's just that recognition that you want to stop it. That's actually quite powerful. It's not that I say stop it and that's it's stopped then forever. Mm. I don't really think that's possible. Mm. But uh, it's the wish to do that. And so you cultivate that wish to stop it every time it comes up. Okay, thank you. In Rays of the Sun, you mention a part of the story of Milarepa, who was a Buddhist master, Buddhist practitioner, who had previously been a murderer. And he goes to his teacher, and he's given this assignment of building these houses with his bare hands and by himself. Mm -hmm. And in Rays of the Sun, you talk about this story as a lesson and how much easier it is to do something than to undo something, which I'd never heard of the story of his life talked about in that way, and I just thought that was thrilling to hear that perspective of it. I'd never thought of that. Well, he um, had to make these towers, mm -hmm. but... Each one he pulled down, he'd have to take all the stones back to where he found them. So it wasn't mm -hmm. just pulling them down, it was, it was returning everything to where it was. Mm -hmm. Then he'd have to build another tower, a bigger one. Yeah, exactly. Right where he had the stone mm -hmm. originally, that's where he had to take it. So how does that relate to this notion of of this state that transcends causality, this lesson of that it's easier to do something than it is to undo it, but then it is possible to undo it. But in Milarepa's case, he was... So usually the way that his life is often talked about in many Buddhist books, I've heard lots of lamas tell the story of his life as a sense of him sort of undoing his karma through these acts, but here it seems like, are you pointing to that his, he had to have some understanding about karma and causality, or what does it mean that it's more difficult to undo something, and how does that relate to this transcending causality? Um, what's, what's being undone, and why it's hard to undo something is because if you do something and you like it, you'll do it again. So having to try to work out how it might be that you might not like it is trickier. Mm -hmm. Which is why, you know, in terms of acts in the world, um, uh, it could be very easy to... Um, speak your mind and people do and I often am amazed at what people say mm. uh, they speak their mind someone gets terribly upset they're then upset that they've caused this upset 
for maybe various reasons. Maybe they're just upset at the upset they've caused or the half a dozen people in the room will think they're a schmuck for upsetting that person. They then have to go around putting the thing right by apologizing and by saying, well, you know, my pet frog croaked this morning and so I was bent out of shape and this and that and the other. And, you know, they've got to make some great big story to put it all right again. And, and putting it right is complicated in that way. Um, it would be better if they hadn't said the thing in the first place. You know, being subject to knee-jerk reactions. Mm -hmm. So um, the reconstruction or, or the um, putting back of every stone in the tower to, you know, from three miles over there and two miles over there is, is looking at the, that whole process of um, the actions you take in the world. So when, as, as a Buddhist practitioner, when one is putting things right, is that, how is that related to undoing our karma? Or is that related to undoing our karma? Or is that more in order to change our own perception and to have more awareness ourselves sure. rather than clearing some kind of material chunk of karma that's now hanging around? Yes, there's no real material to clear away mm -hmm. it's just our perception of course when you're clearing all these stones away uh, you know there is a mind that's observing that it's how you feel about moving these stones mm. because you've been told to move them so then it is important to make amends and apologize and put the stones back and do all of these acts. Mm -hmm. Well, r rather than excusing yourself, you know, you know, mm -hmm. as I said, because your frog croaked or whatever. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And and that relates to our karma because it's. Of course, you know the thing about Milarepa that's really interesting is yeah. actually another uh, horrible twist on the story. Mm. You see, it wasn't just that he had to keep making these new buildings, each one bigger than the last, mm. but that Mapa was having some contentious issues with his neighbors about um, having a building in this place anyway. Mm. And so the neighbor got to see that um, every building was pulled down. Mm -hmm. So he was lulled into a sense of full security so that when Millerapa you know, built the final really big one, it <laughs> stayed. <laughs> so Millerapa was confronted with the fact that Marpa had a vested interest mm -hmm. in these buildings and, and he had to endure that as well. So that it wasn't just he was you know, you know, doing this just at his practice. Marpa was going to end up with a building where his neighbor didn't want it. Mm. Now, that's very interesting. Yeah. How clever. Um, Kunzang Dojrovich uh, told me this. And uh, it was it's really, and I think it's recorded uh, you know, in various places. Mm. But... Uh, 
his whole um, background in, in terms of studying with a black magician to punish his uncle um, was so convoluted mm. that part of that convolution had to come into the process of knowing that Marpa had something personal to gain out of this. Mm. So it, it was horrendous. Yeah. Interesting. So as far as being freed of the karma of the murders that he'd committed, is that something that is that comes into play, or what should our view of that be? Did he have some kind of karma from the murders, or what effect does um, that have on him? Well, the karma of murdering is... Um, is the propensity for murder to be a solution. Okay, and it's maybe his own aggression. So yeah. if, if you murder once uh, and murder is the answer, then the next time that something happens, uh, murder will be the answer again. Mm -hmm. That's the karma of being a murderer. Mm -hmm. And once you don't have that karma, once you... Um, perceive that murder is not a pleasant activity, you don't want to be engaged in it, that it's not the answer, then it's no longer the answer. Mm -hmm. And that karma then doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. yeah. You see, uh, what you have to bear in mind is that if you attain liberation, what happens to the karma of being a murderer. Do you still have it? It can't be there. Or if it is there, it must exist outside you. If it exists outside you, where does it exist? There'd have to be some kind of, you know, karmic debt collection agency that sent the Pinkertons after you to say exactly, well, you know, I know you're enlightened, but you did commit that murder, so we're going to have to murder you now. But there'd have to be an agency of some kind that was responsible for this karma. So if you attained liberation and there is no karma, then there is no karma. Otherwise, if there is, it has to be logged into something somewhere. Mm. And this is um, unworkable from a Buddhist point of view. So are some of these Buddhist stories that we'll hear, like for example, I'm thinking of the story of the death of Nagarjuna, where he lives and lives and lives, he lives so long, and then he can only be killed by a sickle because he had accidentally cut, he was cutting the grass with a sickle and he killed a bug like this, and so then the story that's passed down is that he, the only way he can die is in this way. Someone tries to chop his head off with a sword, but it doesn't work. It has to actually be a sickle, and then he <laughs> dies. 
And, um, you know, there's these stories like this of, of one's previous karma mm -hmm. determining one's future and, and um, in, you know, told by Buddhist lamas, told by Vajrayana lamas, there, it's out there. And so how, what is, where is that coming from and how can we understand it, this view of everything you're saying makes so much sense and I think everyone who hears it, it just it makes total sense and then how do we also make sense of this other portrayal of karma well, I think in Buddhism? You see, uh, Buddhism uh, grew out of Hinduism mm -hmm. or, well I've already said this is a tricky word, but yeah. anyway, out of Indian culture and the religious themes of that time. Mm -hmm. um, Christianity grew out of Judaism. And so if you look at Christianity, there are going to be aspects of Judaism within it. Right. Um, I can't comment on whether there's any mismatch that occurs in that. But in terms of um, Buddhism, or in terms of any religion that grows out of another religion, uh, there's going to be some kind of segue there, especially culturally. And, um, you know, for example, six realms mm -hmm. are understood in Hinduism as well. Oh, wow, I didn't know they are part of Indian culture. Uh, what Buddhism does with those six realms is to explain how they are functions of perception. Mm -hmm. So we still talk about hell beings, hungry ghosts, and uh, you know, but but then we look at what is actually meant by that. Chögyam mm Trungpa -hmm. Rinpoche. Um, on the six realms as psychological states. And I, I don't know what year it was, but I think it was toward the end of the last century um, that um, Dalai Lama said, these are not actual places. Um, I don't know who else might say that. But I think for some people, um, the whole question of perception response is too abstract. And therefore, teachings are often given uh, at a primitive level mm -hmm. for people who can't understand something abstract. And um, also, you have to remember that um, the Tatika view of karma is a really good instrument of social control. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, kings and emperors back in that time uh, adopted religions uh, as modes of social control, as a, a medium of culture. Mm. I mean, it's um, one of the emperors of China, I can't remember which, had a look at all the world religions and decided on Buddhism because he thought it was the most logical, not out of some kind of faith or whatever, but um, he thought, right, this will be good for the people and it will keep things in order. Um, Buddhism was brought to Tibet and um, 
part of its being brought to Tibet was because of the culture of China and India. I mean, Tibet was a warlike country, and they could whack anyone they liked. They had um, you know, China and all sorts of places paying tribute to them. Um, and, you know, what you do, um, and this might be useful in the future when you become a, um, a world dominator, <laughs> um, you know, that, that first of all, you go around and whack everybody, and you get a big empire, but then you're aware, well, I've, I've gone around and I've whacked everybody, but basically, I'm a barbaric thug, and now I want culture. So then you have to get some culture from somewhere. Um, Attila the Hun was the same. Mm. He did all that stuff, and then he thought, right, what we need now are some baths so people can wash, you know, because I, I saw it down there in Rome, and it looked really good, and, and I enjoyed it, and, um, you know, we're going to get less bar barbaric now, and that's what usually mm. happens. Um, so there's this function then of... Uh, religion serving all kinds of purposes. Religion serves a political purpose, you know, as well as a, as a cultural purpose that uh, Buddhism was seen as being a fantastically rich culture. It had medicine, architecture, you know, a whole realm of things that Tibetans didn't have, so they wanted it. Well, the king wanted it because he wanted um, uh, not to be a thug anymore. You know? We don't want to be a, um, a land of barbarians, you know, who just go around whacking people. We want culture here. Now, part of that culture and part of that social control, you know, goes into adopting. Uh, a view of karma that fits with social control mm. and telling people that um, as soon as you don't have the mind of a murderer, you're not a murderer, is very tricky. Yeah. It's tricky in this society too. You know, you sling someone in prison for murder and um, people are trying to get the fellow or the woman um, electrocuted for 20 years and then finally they succeed. And by the time they punish the person for it, they're no longer the person who committed that crime. Or they might be, mm -hmm. but they might have lost that mind. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as you can see, the penal system in this country wouldn't take kindly to that idea either. Mm -hmm. I mean, you couldn't say, oh, this person's a saint now. People have tried that, and, the, <laughs> and genuinely the person has changed yeah. and is humanitarian and yeah. helps people. and. But still, you know, the so, public is still feels they are a murderer. Yeah, you know because you know so you can see how widespread that is, mm -hmm. uh, and the you know desire to punish. Um, uh, you can find things that are said about this in all religions, though. I mean, I. I I've never studied many religions, but um, I had to study the Bible at school and take it, you know, and examine it. Um, we studied Matthew, so I can still remember quotes from it. Mm. And um, 
you know, one of the things that I always remember is vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I, it's not yours. It doesn't belong to the state or the president or the queen. It's, um, you know, no one's responsible for that. That's that's really important. Yeah. Um, you know, the consequences of being me are being me, and I have to put up with that. Mm. And you're having to put up with it at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But um, so the punishment for being me is being me. Mm. I have to endure that. You know, you can see people out there whose whole lives is a punishment. You can just see them making themselves miserable. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't have to punish them on top of that. The desire to punish people comes from the complete incomprehension that everyone is their own punishment. They've got the whole thing worked out. They've got the whole penal system built into themselves. <laughs> and so you know they're not going to get away with it. Well, you should do. Because you can't get away from being yourself unless that changes. Hmm. So uh, getting back to... Um, the story about the sickle. Um, there are all kinds of ways of, uh, of understanding stories like that. One is in terms of social control. And of course, the other thing is a question of um, when Padmasambhava said, my mind is as vast as the sky, but my actions are like grains of flour. This whole thing about how he dies, it can't be with the sword, it has to be with the sickle. Um, my own take on that would be the extreme particularity mm. of every action. Mm. That you have to be careful what you do. That's what I would take from that story. Mm. You see, um, if he didn't mean to kill the insect, what is that karma anyway? Right, because his intention wasn't to kill the insect. Right, so your karma is what your intention is. Mm. If you accidentally kill an insect, well, what is that in terms of patterning? There is no patterning there. I mean, if you, you, know, if you drive along in a car and bugs are squashed on your windscreen, you didn't want them to die there. So the answer is don't drive a car. And there are certain um, schools, like the Jains, who, who wear um, muslin in front of their faces so they can't breathe in insects, and they, you know, they try not to kill anything. But if you live, you kill. You can't help killing. You take antibiotics, you kill. And all you can do is, is be sorry for that and try and cause as little harm as you can. So it's always with, it, with um, Dharma, it's what's most important is motivation. You have to look at your motivation. So if you commit some 
generous act and your motivation is to make people think that you're extremely generous and to admire you, then that was your motivation. And it wasn't a an act of generosity at all. Mm -hmm. It was an act of self-aggrandizement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, if I want to kill you and I get out my gun and I try to shoot you and the gun jams and I don't succeed, I'm still a murderer because I tried to kill you and failed. So if I want to kill you, I try to kill you, I fail to kill you, and I'm angry that I failed, then that establishes a karma, whether you're dead or not. If I'm here playing with my gun and I accidentally shoot you and I'm grief-stricken by it, and that's a completely different thing, but you're dead. <laughs> but it wasn't my motivation to kill you. That just happened by accident. I mean, sure, I have the um, perceptual karma of being a klutz with guns and not being safety conscious and being an idiot. So I have the karma of an idiot, an accident-prone idiot. But I don't have the karma of a murderer because it wasn't my intention. If I try to kill you and fail and resent the fact that I failed, then I am a murderer because that was my intention, even though I failed. So if we're careful with, with our actions, I think that you said that was one of the things that could be taken from that story is the, is the sense of being meticulous about our actions Really, that's being meticulous about our intentions mm. and actions as a way of affecting our own perceptual habits. Is that? Yeah. So that's why we would want to take you positive the, actions. You see, or? the thing about the scythe and the sword, mm -hmm. what is it that prevents the sword from killing him? Because he can only be killed with the scythe. What is it that's mm -hmm. built into the nature of the sword and the person who's wielding it that makes that impossible? Mm -hmm. You have to posit something mm -hmm. as being built into the structure of reality that controls that. Mm -hmm. Now, the only thing, thing I can think of that would have that effect is God. You'd have to posit a God who's in charge saying, no, no, no. Uh, you may think you can kill him, but actually I've, I've put a hex on you and, and your arm's just going to freeze. <laughs> but there has to be some outside agency that prevents that. In this myth, he is immortality, or he has taken some kind of elixirs and nectars that enable to him to have a very strong life force. But the exception is that sickle. But why? Um, he actually tells someone this. They want to kill mm -hmm. him because there's some prophecy that in order for someone to become the emperor, it has to be at the end of this master's lifespan. And so he says, well, okay, that's fine. I can go along with that, but I can't. I can only die through these means. But this sounds so. more like Harry Potter than Dharma to sure, me. Sure, yeah. So, uh, uh, 
I find Harry Potter fun. Yeah. I can watch it with my children, and uh, and it's a ripping yarn. But yeah. But Dharma is not actually a ripping yarn. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually have to understand, you know, what is functioning there. So maybe do we look to these stories as? Some a symbolic communication of some kind. Yeah. Or they can't really be mysterious. Mm-hmm. As soon as the story is mysterious, mm. then you've gone into a realm where faith is required. Mm. Now, um, um, Dharma does require learning faith or intelligent faith. Um, intelligent faith is when you have practiced and you see the result of practice, and you see that the teachings you've received hold good in your own experience, then you'll be aware that there's a whole body of other material that lies outside your experience, and you feel able to take that as a working hypothesis. You think, well, it's been true up to now, and I have a good guess that the rest is likely to be true, but I don't know it yet. But I will act as if, well, yes, that's going to happen. I mean, I had to have a great deal of faith to believe I was actually going to learn to counter one day. Because as far as I was concerned, every time Melissa got me, my writing teacher got me countering, I'd be hanging onto the saddle, bouncing up and down, thinking, well, you know, how do you do this? And she'd say mysterious things like, you need to have a deeper seat in the saddle. I think, well, I'm on the saddle. I can't get deeper into it without removing layers of it and burrowing into it like a tick or something. Uh, how am I going to do this? But I realized there were other people who could counter. I could, I could see them. And they seemed to be able to do it, just I couldn't. And I, but I had no proof that, well, like everyone else, you will also be able to counter. So I had to take it on faith that she thought I would eventually learn to counter. You know, I just had to keep doing this and doing that and doing the other. But what she'd said up to that point had held good, so I trusted her. And in the end, I did learn to counter, but I had no absolute proof that that was ever going to happen. So I had to take it as a working hypothesis, and that's called intelligent faith. But you can't, as a Buddhist, just hear stories and accept that somehow someone cannot be killed by a sword because they once killed a bug with a sickle, and that's the only bit of karma they got left. Because you have to ask, well... Where is that encoded? What agency applies that? Otherwise, you're working at a level of primitive superstition. And you know, whatever the value of the story is, you still have to say, well, what are the operational parameters of that? I mean, you can see the operational parameters of perception and response. Mm-hmm. It's quite easy. You know, I don't like Frank Sinatra. There's a Frank Sinatra album on the turntable. I don't play it. I don't want to hear it. So I I, I have this idea in my mind and I carry it out. And then I'm glad I didn't play it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
I, I see a Robert Johnson album. I say, oh, Robert Johnson, let's put that on. I'm glad I put that on. <laughs> you can see how that works. Yeah. So I'll put it on again. Whatever I don't like, I avoid. Whatever I like, I go for. Whatever I can't manipulate, I ignore. You know, and that's the state of duality. I like it because it proves my existence. I dislike it because it disproves my existence. I ignore it because I can't manipulate it. And that's the nature of um, perception, of dualized perception. And that's what karma is. Otherwise, you have to posit God or some other external factor that makes it work. You see, here in this country, if, if you commit a murder, I mean, what, what happens? Uh, There's an investigation. CSI, the yeah. police track you down. They put you in prison. So there are police. There's a court. There's a prison. There's the electric chair or the lethal injection or whatever it is. It's all set out. Unless you're white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that. I Unless you're white and rich, and then maybe yeah. you, know, you can override the thing. Yeah, that's, that's, that happens. That's always happened. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, uh, the system of karma breaks down there slightly then. Yeah. So, uh, so you have to see what the operational parameters are, otherwise you just have to believe it. Mm -hmm. So when you ask, how do I understand this? Well, you just have to look at it and say, is this feasible? Mm -hmm. And if this is the case, then what is the agency? You know, you could say, well, it, it, it's in the fabric of existence itself. And then you have to understand how that's functional. How does that prevent the sword from cutting? Mm -hmm. What is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's not. A, it's left mysterious. That that's the only way that it makes sense is if the if there's yeah. no logic. Well, as soon as you leave it mysterious, mm -hmm. there's no purpose in having left the religion of your birth. Right, because it's faith. Uh, you could then believe anything. Mm -hmm. And when asked, well, why do you believe this rather than that? All you can say is, well, I like it more. Mm -hmm. Then there's no purpose trying to understand anything. I mean, I'm not particularly saying there's anything wrong with faith-based religions. Um, I think they're highly functional for some people. But I wouldn't see why anyone would approach Buddhism as a faith-based religion when it's one of the ones that really functions from either logic or direct experience. I should say, however, um, whilst on the subject of faith, that um, just because you don't believe something 
doesn't mean you have to disbelieve it. I mean, I heard stories about yetis. And there is some evidence that, that indicate that they might be there. But I've never seen one. Uh, just because I've never seen one doesn't mean that I d disbelieve in them. Doesn't mean I believe in them either. I just don't know. And there's no point in coming down on either side unless I see one. There's no point in believing anything or disbelieving anything. Unless, you know, the belief has an advantage in some way. Should we have that attitude? Would that be a, the, a useful view to take when we hear stories like that? Yeah, I mean, really I mean, you have to apply myths. it with advertising on the television. You've got to see a movie there's always advertising. I mean, what are you going to do, believe it all? Yeah. I mean, you know, why, why believe that story and not believe advertising? You know, get a Bill Gates computer, you'll be happy. No, you won't. I don't believe it. <laughs> you know what I've got on my computer? The, the, the Microsoft thing, when it comes up, you know, uh, says, welcome. <laughs> well, I've got one of my students to change that to abandon hope <laughs> because I wanted to say something more realistic when I turned it on. You know? <laughs> now Bill Gates won't like me along with all the other people who don't like me. <laughs> He's probably a fine fellow. You listening, Bill? On the right? <laughs> Is he? Well, well I, I take it all back, Bill. I didn't mean it. <laughs> I love your computers. <laughs> Well, this brings up another question I had. Um, actually, the maybe the last one on this topic of karma. I have, we'll see. Which is uh, you know, karma is a is a yeah. naughty subject. Um, yeah. I always groan when anybody brings up karma on any retreat because I know it's going to dominate the next two hours. Oh, sure. You know, I'm not going to be able to continue with the subject, but. It's, there's a lot of emotion comes up about it too in oh. people, and people can get really quite um, annoyed. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I seem to be a very annoying person. Uh. <laughs> it's not my intention, I should say. <laughs> it just happens. Well, in Rays of the Sun, in page 34, you say, morality, ethics, and discipline in Buddhism is self-existent. And that morality, ethics, and discipline are not always entirely healthy. So I thought this fits in with what we're talking about. What about this comment on morality, ethics, and discipline aren't always entirely healthy? What could you describe? I think you have a little bit already. When you use them as weapons. Mm. You can use anything as a weapon or as a cudgel to beat someone with. Mm. And, you know, the world is full of religions, as we know, who 
who who take offense on some supposed moral ground what other people are doing then have to beat them for it. Mm. So that's what I mean there. Mm. Um, I'd, I always prefer to talk about um, awareness and kindness. Mm. If you apply awareness and kindness, then you don't need a complex set of ethics and morals you act with awareness and kindness. I think kindness covers all bases. Mm. You say, is this kind? You don't have to say, is this ethical? Mm. As far as the self-existent part of the morality and ethics, how is that? I think that's what people's fear of this view of karma is that without that sense of behaving in some way in order to accumulate merit or to accumulate good karma is are we just left with sort of mayhem and savageness and or no we're left with awareness and kindness mm. and can how is that will you describe that how is that the case i know that i can think of some people who don't seem to have who seem to be really helped by having fixed sense of morality and discipline and even a rigid sense of it. They seem to be helped by it. And maybe mm -hmm. for them, it would not be helpful for them to follow a Buddhist path or something they don't yeah. have. Well, I think it depends how we're talking here. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm... Um, and I wouldn't like to be misunderstood on this. Mm -hmm. Um... I don't really see myself as addressing the world or anything mm -hmm. like that. I'm really, um, contradiction and I are only addressing people who are interested in the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism and within that, the, the Arutair lineage mm -hmm. that we represent. Um, so, I don't particularly have answers outside that. Mm. Um, I would then become a spiritual politician or a spiritual diplomat of some kind. Um, it's not that I wouldn't like to be helpful to the broad mass of humanity, um, but that's not really my remit. Um, Certainly, I know that um, fundamentalist religion is good for reformed criminals. So I'm not ignorant of, of that aspect of how things work. And I can see the principle and function there, that if you are a reformed criminal, then areas of gray are not a good idea having everything mapped out very clearly, thou shalt not do this, that, and the other, um, can be useful. But um, as to uh, manufacturing a set of them, I'd say, well, leave that to the fundamentalist religions. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of them, and they cater for people, but uh, I, I wouldn't care to interfere. So um, if people need it, then they need it. 
And I'm not saying they shouldn't read it, because that would be stupid. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever people need in terms of a, uh, a mechanism of help, that is what they need. And that will then be the perfect thing for them. That's very much uh, understood in terms of the yanas, that there is no higher or lower yana. There are higher and lower practitioners. And what's suitable for you, what's going to help you move, what's going to help you evolve a, a more uh, benevolent mien is obviously useful. Mm -hmm. So um, whatever's required. But there are all kinds of different people, and they come from different places in terms of what their perception is. And everyone can be helped by something different. So I wouldn't say Buddhism is the best religion. Well, it's maybe the best religion for me. Um, but I wouldn't say it's the best religion for somebody else. Or that you know one shouldn't follow theistic religions because uh, I, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. So uh, Buddhists are supposed to be atheists, by the way, although a lot of them hedge their bets on that one, but um, um, having said that, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the theistic religion. It's really useful for some people. Mm -hmm. That whole idea of God is helpful to some people, and they'd be lost without it. So why should I want to take that away? If it has a function and you can see the function, then that's great. And if it helps people um, evolve, better mien in terms of the world, then that's great. There may be some higher teaching that we enti entirely useless for them. That's so wonderful to hear you talking about. I think every time you hear, every time I've heard you talk about this, it seems to me to bring out a super important quality of Buddhism that I really love. What you said about, well, what this idea of principle and function, if it's helpful for them, then they should do that. Mm. And so in terms of awareness and kindness, would we, for Buddhist practitioners in the Nyingma tradition and in the Arotara lineage, it, is it that at the at the level of practice that we would be to even come to a lineage like this and to a tradition like this, that awareness and kindness, are, we're aware of how it is self-existent already, or that how are we, how do we experience that as practitioners in general or come to experience it being self-existent? I know many Buddhists who don't seem very kind, in, even in our own tradition, and, and so... Well, you discover it by sitting... You sit and you discover it. Mm. You, you sit and it starts to make itself apparent because we are beginninglessly enlightened, uh, we're beginninglessly non-dual, and as soon as we cease to create duality, it starts to become eroded, and so our natural functioning begins to manifest. Uh, in terms of Buddhists not being kind, um, 
uh, of course, it depends why you call yourself a Buddhist, mm -hmm. what you want to get out of it. Now, if you call yourself a Buddhist and your main motivation is social climbing, personal power, self-importance, domination of others, uh, then that has got very little to do with Buddhism. And all one is then doing is using the framework of Buddhism to achieve those other ends. Mm. Now, this you can do with any religion. Mm. Um, but so it's not really accurate to call such a person a Buddhist because their, their, their motivation is not Buddhist. The only real way you can define a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew is by saying, does their motivation match the religion? And if it doesn't, then they can't really call themselves that. I mean, what do you call a vegetarian who eats meat? <laughs> I wouldn't call them a vegetarian. But what if they demand to be called a vegetarian? Mm -hmm. And they wear an I'm a vegetarian badge. They wear, you know, they have a vegetarian uniform if there was such a thing, you know. Um, they've got a special vegetarian hat and a vegetarian bell and damaru and they've got all the right vegetarian things, but they eat meat. It's, you know, it's, I'm purposely making it ridiculous yeah. uh, in order to say, well, such a person is not actually a Buddhist. Mm. They're just wearing all the Buddhist clothes and they've got the Buddhist terminology and the Buddhist whatever else. And that's all. Okay. So a Buddhist is only a person who acts like one. And they act like one because they have that motivation. Mm. If they don't have the motivation, then you can't call them Buddhist. Um, this is very much the case um, when you look at the yanas. You know, there are people who call themselves Dzogchen practitioners. Now, it's actually crazy to call yourself that. I mean, quite apart from the fact that you have to be at the non-dual base in order to practice that, but there's really no such thing as a Dzogchen practitioner. There are Nyingma practitioners, some of whom practice Dzogchen. But in order to practice Dzogchen, you have to be at the base. If you're practicing Dzogchen methods and your motivation is for your own realization, then by definition, You're a Pratyeka Buddha. Mm -hmm. Because that's what the Pratyekas are. They're going for their own realization. So what you're practicing is defined by your motivation, not by the methodology of it. So if your motivation is for your own realization, then that's Pratyeka Buddha Yana. It's not Dzogchen. Uh, it's not Mahayana because you're not practicing for the benefit of all beings. Mm. 
at least you have to have this, you know, mm. and then each yana has its particular motivation. Which in Dzogchen would be the non-dual state, that our motivation is to realize the non-dual state? It would be the natural efflorescence of the non-dual state because mm. uh, compassion is implicit there, it's self-existent. Oh, right, okay. that's, that's what's meant by this self-existent word, mm -hmm. that, um, that you know, there is no morality or ethics because they're self-existent. Mm -hmm. You don't have to apply any codified form of ethics because your behavior is natural. And natural behavior is non-dual behavior. And you can't just say, well, this is what I do because I call myself a Dzogchen mm -hmm. practitioner. You, you know, you actually have to be in that state. You have to rest in the non-dual state and then all your action springs from that. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's a fairly tall order. Mm -hmm. So if you can't do that, then you have to apply something else. And so you move uh, from yana to yana in a direction of which you could say, right, now this I can practice. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll practice you know, putting others first for once. Mm -hmm. you know? And then you think, well, hang on, um, that's actually Christianity too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, it's, uh, you know, this applies to everybody. Whatever practice, you know, you think, oh, God, everything I've done today has been me, you know, my advantage. You just have to become aware of that. Uh, and then you're a practitioner because you're looking at yourself, you're making some judgments about how you are. And if you don't do that, you're, you're not a Buddhist, you're not anything else either. You're not humanitarian. You're just a sociopath, you know. Mm. <laughs> I mean, not you, I mean one. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. I, Thank I'm you for clarifying that I'm on the record. That's very important. <laughs> I'm using you loosely, you know, like me, all of us. Y'all. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I'm glad. <laughs> okay, Ramute, well, thank you very much. Mm -hmm.